Our reading comes from Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Listen now for the word of the Lord to you this morning. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. This is the word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for having me. Thank you for welcoming me so graciously these last few days. It's been a joy to get to know some of you, and I hope to get to say hello to a few more of you after the service. Um, and I was thinking about how awkward it is for, uh, to be invited to speak on the first Sunday of Lent uh, to a bunch of strangers and about sin and death. But um, here we are. So hopefully bear with me as, we, as I deliver some unpleasant news. Better me than, than them, I suppose. Um, they get to be the good guy, I get to be the bad guy. Um, I wonder if you've ever had the experience of the reply all. You ever had the bad experience of a reply all? You replied all thinking you were sending something just to the person who sent you the email but you sent it to the entire universe. Maybe you said something just, you know, innocuous. Perhaps you said something insulting, though, or just plain uh, uncomfortable. Well, um, I have had that happen, and it actually ended a friendship. You know, when, when people, you, you think no one's listening, and you say something that maybe, maybe was meant for one set of ears, but not, you know, 300. Uh, that happens, and it can be very, very awkward indeed, sometimes even painful. And I think that's one of the reasons why Tim Kreider, writing in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago, said the following. He said, I've often thought that the single most devastating cyber attack a diabolical mind could uh, design would be not on the military or financial sector, but simply to simultaneously make every email and text ever sent universally public. Are you uncomfortable yet? The fabric of society would instantly evaporate. Civilization would collapse in an apocalypse of bitter recriminations and weeping, breakups and fistfights, divorces and bankruptcies, scandals and resignations, blood feuds, litigation, wholesale slaughter in the streets. Now perhaps he um, overstates things for effect. But when we are talking about the reply all, we are talking about what is in secret 
being revealed in such a way as to uh, incur not just awkwardness, but dissent and rejection and judgment and sometimes uh, pain. We are in the realm, therefore, of Lent, which is a time when we are reminded not only of our mortality and that to dust we shall return, but also it is a season of repentance. It is a time to, uh, at least in my tradition, the, the Episcopal Church, where we, we try to remember the suffering and the temptation of Christ in the desert. Uh, it is a time where our sin, if properly understood, should be close to us. A season of contrition, a season of repentance. The great American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr once referred to original sin as the, quote, only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. <laughs> and what he meant is simply that our histories, both global and personal and digital, bear out the Bible's claim that our basic nature is fatally compromised. Fatally compromised. You know, I, Austin, I've noticed, has become a, a real... Um, center of entrepreneurship uh, to we hear headlines about how the entire state of California has migrated here in particular like Silicon Valley and the kind of uh, you know optimization of the human creature into perfection has become uh, an Austin project not just a California project and no wonder when you come everywhere you hear not just here but in the whole uh, Western world, you hear about human potential and goodness and progress, and certainly there's a place for that, but in Lent, we hear about the opposite. We are reminded of the reality of human weakness and frailty and mortality and, yes, culpability. We're reminded of what we spoke about this past weekend in this, this book I wrote, Low Anthropology. It is the time when we look it directly in the face. So it's appropriate to read this episode, this uh, or text from Genesis about what happened in the Garden of Eden. Now, what does happen? At first, man and woman, woman exist in a state of total dependence on God, and it's a happy state. It's contented. Every need is provided for. But then a lie is told. Did God really say, you will not die? A seed is planted, and soon Eve, we are told, hates that something is being withheld. What she wants is what we all want. She wants control. She does not want dependence. She wants independence. She does not want anyone telling her what she can or cannot do. Thank you very much. And so we have this original sin which sometimes you hear characterized as the fall from grace, when it's actually a reaching upward. It's not a fall. It's a reaching upward and beyond. It is an act of hubris, of pride, of wanting to be God, to be the captain of your own ship, to be the arbiter of your own fate, to decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. Now, one of the reasons I was excited to be invited this weekend is that uh, my son, who is in third grade is doing their uh, school musical. And I don't know if you've been to a third grade musical recently, but um, spare us third grade musicals, okay? <laughs> they're, 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 they're 
it's just an act of um, suspension of disbelief, shall we say, and uh, uh, love in the extreme, but also uh, supreme um, patience and forbearance. And so he doesn't have a big part. He's just up there. But um, so I was glad to get the, the, the opportunity to miss it. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a good father. Uh, but I'm reminded of what it means to be a sinner is to basically uh, all of life becomes a third grade musical. Now, what do I mean by that? Can you imagine the chaos that would break out on the set of a play? if one of the actors tried suddenly to usurp the director's role. The chaos probably wouldn't last very long, unless they're in third grade, in which case it would last the length of the play. But the actor would soon be on his way out the door and in search of a new job. Now, imagine the further insanity that would ensue if all of the actors in a show somehow got the same wrong idea about their role and they all started to control the production simultaneously, each with a different idea of how the story should be written. Well, that is a picture of what it means to live in a world full of those grasping for control, a world in which original sin has made its indelible stamp on our day to day. And it may not be an optimistic or happy picture, it may not be very marketable, but it is one that accounts for much of the pain and worry and chaos that mark our lives, the data of our actual history. And yet, let's face it, sin can be a dirty word. It has been so abused and misused that many mistake sin for an antiquated notion that only makes people feel bad. Don't talk about sin. That's shaming. I don't want to feel bad about myself. I don't want low self-esteem. Sin, in other words, has come to be understood as harmful or sinful. Other people equate sin almost exclusively with immoral action. Sin city, right? That sin is avoidable somehow if you can just live a squeaky clean life, if you can hold to the wheel tightly enough that you can control your life. Now when sin is boiled down to low self-esteem or immoral action, it becomes something, yes, that we can control, indicative of the very state that it's trying to describe. It becomes something we can limit in some way rather than something to which we are subject to, something we are controlled by, an internal as well as external state. You see, in many ways, original sin is simply another word for the human condition. Now, don't think about it as the people out there. Think about it in terms of yourself. How many of us are ready to stand up to the sort of scrutiny that a national election would require? How many of us would want our inboxes, our text histories exposed to the world? If you say yes, meet me afterwards, and we'll, I've got an experiment. I'm just kidding. Uh, I would hope that 100% of people would be uncomfortable with that. In, uh, because this is not just a story about a garden. This is a story about the reply all. This is a story about you and me. Now, let's take a step back. How do we cope with our sin? If this is truly the case, and whether or not you want to use the word or you want to, uh, 
or not, or use another word. You can use the word dysfunction, you can use the word bias, but somehow it seems to describe the empirical reality of our lives. How do we cope with it? How do we survive given this is what life in the world is like, life with ourselves is like? How do we avoid exposure and shame? Well, I think management is our chief stratagem. We manage our text messages. We manage our inboxes. We manage our careers. We curate our relationships, our personalities. Anxiety and fear breed all sorts of controlling behavior. And so we edit and we hide. In biblical terms, we put clothes on. We only allow to be seen that which we deem lovable, and we hide everything else. We put masks on as well. But just as it goes with clothes, management of this kind blocks intimacy. It leaves out love. I was thinking about this in terms of a column in the New York Times a few years ago by Daniel Jones, who writes the Modern Love column. He wrote about soulmates in a box. Now, a soulmate in a box is someone that you meet online, someone that you never have to interact with physically, but you meet through sort of social media in some way, and you develop a deep emotional connection with this person, such that you've never felt so known and loved. And you start to talk about them as your soulmate, and then the phenomenon that he has, has received countless emails about is that you then meet this person in the flesh and somehow it doesn't translate into brick and mortar love. This is what he concludes. He says, we're always searching for new ways of finding love that don't involve having to feel insecure and vulnerable because who wants to feel insecure and vulnerable and well, naked? Who wants to be judged and rejected? So when we get the chance to hide, whether through typed messages that we can edit and control, we're freed from much of that anxiety and we're fooled into thinking this may be a better and truer way of having a relationship. These relationships, these soulmate-in-a-box relationships, are all about sharing your every thought, idea, and emotional burp. But they're also, crucially, about being able to close your laptop and turn off your phone whenever you want to and continue your life as you wish unencumbered. He concludes, all of us want love without any cost or vulnerability. We want to avoid any possibility of shame or rejection. Yet there are factors which cannot be circumvented in the pursuit of affection. Much as I wish it weren't the case, much as we all wish it weren't the case, love without vulnerability, without honesty, isn't really love. No one ultimately feels loved when some online projection of their identity is getting the hoped-for response from another person. Because to be loved is to be known in your low anthropology, and yet we know that what they are loving or liking is not actually us, it's just some small sliver that we have already deemed acceptable. In this way, the clothing designed to afford us intimacy the management techniques only make us more lonely. And if you need the data to back it up, look at loneliness statistics. It's very bracing how much loneliness in our culture has increased 
the UK has even appointed a government minister of loneliness for crying out loud. Now, thank God we don't live there. I'm just kidding. My younger brother lives there. He's extremely lonely. Um, just kidding. Um, am I kidding? Uh, but there is good news buried in this grim headline about original sin. You see, if it's true that we spend so much of our lives covering up our unloving and self-interested behavior, that this description from Genesis and from the New Testament as well, it gives us the permission to let down our guard before God, if not others, that can be an enormous relief to those who are scrambling to make sure no one sees the real me. Nadia Boltz-Weber puts it this way. She says, there is great hope in Lent, a great hope in admitting our mortality and brokenness because then we finally lay aside our sin management program long enough to allow God to be God for me. So perhaps original sin isn't as depressing as it appears at first blush. That we are in bondage to our addiction to control and cannot free ourselves is not actually that depressing. What's depressing is the desperation of pretending otherwise. What's depressing is to insist that I can free myself, I just haven't managed to do so yet. That's what creates low self-esteem. That's the engine of self-loathing. This idea that you alone, you are uniquely flawed. Not that you are simply a member of the human race and subject to all of the same inheritance as the brothers and sisters that surround you. Karl Barth once said that only Christians sin, and what he meant by that was that the person who doesn't know a gracious God can never be truly honest about themselves. I think he was on to something. I think that in light of this uncomfortable and inconvenient truth about human nature. The great question of life is not if our addiction to control will cause us to act in foolish and self-seeking ways, but what will happen when we do. It means that the great theme of human existence, and literature, I might add, is the presence or lack of love when we experience those times of defeat. The solution to sin and loneliness is not a proposition, but a relationship. Not a what, but a who. I'll close with a story. Theodore Parker Ferris, rector of Trinity Church in Boston, in the early part of the last century, relates the story of having dinner with a young man, and they were talking about that young man's father, who is known to be a stern and exacting man. The son had said that when he was in the army, he had made a terrible mistake, gotten into trouble, and was given a dishonorable discharge. He knew that what he had done disgraced the family, and he was sure that his father would be outraged. But he also knew that he had to tell his father what had happened. So I did, the son said. I wired him and told him what happened. He sent a telegram back, and the telegram had three sentences in it. I will stand by you no matter what happens. I will be there in the morning. Remember whose you are. This is the gospel that we remember 
at all times of the year, not just Lent, that the one we assumed would be an enemy of sinners turns out to be the great friend of sinners. This Jesus Christ, who knows, who suffers the burden of our embarrassing stories and shameful realities, and yet does not turn away. The fear that we harbor is not just some kind of psychologized guilt. It is rooted in deliberate thoughts and actions that rightly should condemn us. The guilt related to sin is real and it breeds real debilitating fear and hiding. And yet it is precisely into this cycle that the message of the gospel breaks. The announcement that on the cross, Jesus Christ willingly took on the consequences of our sin and shame. That he took the initiative in bridging the gap of alienation between us and God so that we might stand known before him without fear or hiding. That we might rest secure, confident that we are not just seen, but forgiven absolved that the reply to our reply all is only three lines long and it speaks to you this morning in the words of that father which say I will stand by you no matter what happens I will be there in the morning remember whose you are. Amen.